2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do not have knowledge. We may, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the region of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lucy, for reading that passage to us. Have you ever been deceived? A few years ago, one Saturday morning, I got a text message from the post office, uh, and they told me that a parcel was waiting for me, and that I had a little bit extra to pay um, in order to get it delivered. And I thought to myself, that's a bit strange. Um, I don't remember ordering anything. But eventually, I put in my bank account details. And then on Sunday evening, we had had the 6.30 service. I was I'd locked up. It was about 9 o'clock. I was feeling pretty tired. And I was just getting my things from the office to go home. When a message came through on my phone, it was from my bank, telling me that there had been suspicious activity on my bank account, and I needed to take action now. And so... I phoned the number and uh, got through to the bank. They explained the situation to me. They asked me a few security questions. And then they said they needed to move my money into another account in order to keep it safe. And I thought, really? Are you the bank? Yes, yes, we are. And um, we tried various things in order to move the money and 
things weren't quite working out um, you know, as it was going along and I was feeling tired and things were dragging on and we had another go at it and then I thought to myself, why don't I check out the bank's website? So I uh, opened up my computer and sure enough it said this headline, watch out for scams including from the post office. And so I said to the guy on the phone, I don't think you're the bank. I'm going to hang up on you. And I did. And he tried to phone me back, and I wouldn't answer. And he tried again, and he wouldn't, I wouldn't answer. And I went home. And to be honest, I felt pretty stressed by it all. And then the next day, Monday morning, I went straight into my local branch. And um, thankfully, everything was OK. No money had been taken from the account. And as I sat there chatting to the bank manager, like I, I felt grateful that nothing had happened. And then I felt really stupid and um, that I'd been taken in by it. And the, and the, the man in the bank said, um, you know, a number of people have come in about this over this past week. You're not the first. And as I was leaving, he said to me, Mr. Nesbitt, please be careful the next time. Have you ever been deceived? Like maybe it involved money and you did lose money in the scam. Or maybe it was a dating app and the person in the profile and the person you met were quite different. Or maybe in a friendship and you sense this person isn't being honest with me. They're, I think they're taking advantage of me. We live in a world awash with information and fake news. And we wonder, what is real? Can we believe anyone? Well, the Corinthian church was being deceived. It involved money and friendships and information. But more than that, it was a salvation scam. The Apostle Paul, the founder of the church and the writer of this letter, is warning them, don't be so gullible. Like he's always had a difficult relationship with this church, but now some super apostles are leading the church away from Paul and away from Jesus, and Paul's deeply concerned for them. He uses emotional and emotive language. Stop putting up with them. Satan is at work here. Come back to Jesus. And for us, one of the marks of being a Christian is our devotion to Christ, our loyalty to him, our love for him. And Paul says, don't take that for granted. It's possible for us to be deceived, to be fooled. The stakes are high. Paul wants us to be devoted, not deceived. So how can we be? First of all, don't be fooled by the message. Verses 1 to 5. Let me read verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray 
from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There are rules in the Christian faith. There are certain key beliefs. And there are rituals in the faith, certain practices like baptism, but at the heart of it is a relationship, a loving relationship. Jesus loves his church. He loves you. And his love is real and passionate and sacrificial and better than anything or anyone. And in response to his love, he wants us to love him, to be sincerely and purely devoted to him, just as he is to us. And that's why Paul uses this metaphor of marriage in verse 2. Jesus is the bridegroom who will one day be the husband of his bride, the church. And Paul sees himself as the father of the bride. And on that wedding day, when he's asked, who gives his church to my son? He wants to say, I do. But now some super apostles are wrecking this marriage. The church is on, is on the verge of cheating on Jesus, of believing the lies that these super apostles are spreading. And Paul doesn't shrug his shoulders. He's jealous for them because Jesus is jealous for them. We've been here before, he says. Verse 3. Back in the Garden of Eden, the story told in Genesis chapter 3, the crafty snake deceived Eve. He made her doubt God's word. He made false promises. He used God's words, but he twisted their meaning. And she was led astray from her devotion to the Lord. And now these super apostles preach Jesus, offer the Spirit, speak the gospel, but they aren't the real thing. It's a salvation scam. Now, Paul doesn't go into the details here, but these super apostles were probably playing down the cross of Jesus and pumping up the glory of Jesus. That the Spirit was one of power and strength and the gospel of no suffering and weakness. And that kind of message really appealed to the Corinthians. It fitted in with what they valued and they wanted to hear. It wasn't weird and yet it was all a scam. And Paul says, why are you putting up with this? Stay true to Jesus. Living as a Christian does mean believing in certain key truths about Jesus, about the Spirit, about the Gospel. Truths Paul has written about that the Bible reveals to us. And we need to use our minds in order to understand them and to accept them. They enable us to know and love Jesus, to be devoted to him. It's why in our small groups we have time for Bible study and prayer. But there are lots of different Jesuses, different spirits, different gospels. And often those who promote them want the Christian message to be accepted by society, and so they change the message to fit with our society. The Times newspaper last week published a survey of the views of some Church of England clergy. And then the newspaper commented that the church's leadership had failed, quote, to embrace social change and accept that its doctrines lag behind 
the liberal instincts of most of the British people. And maybe that's the message that's particularly deceiving at the moment, that our church just needs to catch up with the culture. That our church and our culture do use the same words at times. Freedom, identity, fulfillment, diversity, inclusion. And it's important to listen and to repent of mistakes that have been made in the past. But as we hear those words and the messages they're in, is the Jesus spoken about the one who's the image of the invisible God or one made in our own image? Is the spirit the one of holiness or the spirit of the age? Is the gospel one of radical grace and sacrifice or the one that affirms who I want to be and the choices I make. Often, it's not easy to tell, and yet the same words can be used, but it's a different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel, and it will lead you away from Christ. Don't be fooled by the message. And don't be impressed by the show, verses 6 to 12. The Corinthians didn't have smartphones or social media or gaming in order to entertain themselves. They had professional speakers. And they could hold an audience with their words, giving people what they wanted to hear, feeding their egos, and then they charged people for the privilege of listening to them. The higher the fee, the more prestigious the figure, and the more valued the audience felt. They loved a good spectacle, and being associated with these figures, it was the kind of image they wanted to have. And that's how the super apostles presented themselves. They could put on a real show, and so the Corinthian church put them in the spotlight, and Paul, well, they ushered him out the door. He was untrained, cheap, a servant. He definitely didn't fit the image they had in mind. This weekend marks a year since the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And one of the stories that was told after her death, some of us may be familiar with it, was a story about how she met a tourist when she was out for her walk in her ordinary clothes at her country home in Scotland, and the tourist didn't recognize her. And her protection officer, Richard Griffin, was with her, and the tourist spoke to, about where he was from, and when he discovered that the queen had been living in this area and visiting this area for over 80 years, he asked, well, if you've been coming here for 80 years, you must have seen the queen. And quick as a flash, she said, well, I haven't, but Dickie here has met her a number of times. Well, the tourist was like, well, what's she like? And he said, well, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. Well, they chatted a little bit more, and then out came the camera, and the tourist handed it to the queen, so the queen could take a photograph of him and uh, Richard Griffin. 
And then Richard Griffin was kind enough to take a photograph of the tourist and the queen, and they said goodbye. The real queen was standing in front of him, but he didn't recognize her. She didn't fit his expectations. The Corinthians knew the real apostle. They heard the real gospel message. But he didn't fit their image. Paul was a good speaker. He had substance, but his style didn't impress them. He didn't charge them money. In fact, he worked with his own hands to support himself, and he received support from others so that he could offer the gospel free of charge to them, a gospel of God's grace. As he says there in verse 7, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? Paul's lifestyle matched his message. He preached of a Jesus who made himself poor in other, in, so that others might be rich. Paul was humble, selfless, not at all a burden because he loved them and he wanted them to know God's love. He was the servant apostle, not the super apostle. So Corinthians, don't be impressed by the show. You're not seen beyond it to the Savior. And for us, as we look at church leaders, as we look for a church, as we live as the church, don't be impressed by the show. Now that doesn't mean we, we don't try to do things well. We're to have high standards. We're to care for people to ensure their safety and their flourishing. But we don't gauge success by our culture's standards. Having glamorous leaders, or a large following, or a healthy bank balance, or a media profile, or people who look and act as if they're sorted and have the right image. Instead, look for, pray for, leaders who lower themselves to elevate others, who serve, not want to be served. For a church willing to make financial sacrifices for the sake of others. For leaders who don't exploit or compete, putting others down. For a church where people get out of the way so others can see Jesus and know his love and love him together with others who love him. Don't be impressed by the show. And don't be tricked by the disguise. Verses 13 to 15. While I was on holiday in August, I read this book, Colditz by Ben McIntyre. And Colditz is, was a, a castle in Germany, and it was used by the German army as a prison during the Second World War, and it held different prisoners of war. But many of those prisoners tried to escape. And the book begins with one warm September night in 1943, Maybe a little bit like this warm September night. And Sergeant Major Gustav Rothenberger was inspecting the castle's perimeter. And 
This is something that he did every night, and this particular night seemed no different. Except that the man walking around wasn't Rothenberger, but Michael Sinclair, a 25-year-old British lieutenant. But if you looked at him, he looked just like that German officer. His false beard was the right color. His uniform made of prison blankets was the right shade of gray. The gun in his pocket was a wooden one, but it looked just like the real thing. And Sinclair sounded like Rothenberger. He spoke excellent German. He walked like him. He swore like him. And as he walked around, he dismissed the guards one by one until he came to the final guard. And once he was out of the way, Sinclair and 35 other officers would escape. And as he came to the final guard, the guard asked for his exit pass. And eventually, Sinclair handed it over to him. And McIntyre puts it like this. This was a copy of a real pass obtained from a bribed German guard. It was a perfect duplicate in every respect, except it was the wrong color. The fake pass was gray. It was supposed to be yellow. The sentry stirred at it for a moment and back at Rothenberger. Then he slowly raised his rifle. You're going to have to read the book to find out what happened. <laughs> now, with Kolditz, the prisoners disguised themselves in order to get out. But Satan and his apostles disguised themselves to get in. Verse 14. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now we may think, come on, Paul, this is too strong. Like, we know you've been criticized by the Corinthians, but demonizing your opponents, that's too far. But Paul loves this church, and he wants them to love Jesus, and so he reveals to them who they're really dealing with. And this is something Jesus did as well. He once spoke to the Jewish leaders and he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Now we might think they were intolerant back then. We know better today. And there is a right tolerance. People are entitled to their opinions, including wrong opinions. But that can go too far, so we end up saying that nothing or no one is wrong. There are limits to tolerance. There are boundaries of right and wrong, truth and error, light and darkness. And that's what Paul's referring to here. What is going on in Corinth is a spiritual battle. God and Satan are not equals. Satan is not God, but he's powerful and devious. He's a master of disguises. He's the red devil, with horns and a tail and pitchfork, and we laugh, and we think he's not real, and that's exactly what he wants us to think. It's one of his disguises. And other times he masquerades as an angel of light. He looks and speaks and sings and laughs just like a Christian. He quotes the Bible. He did to Jesus in the wilderness, but he twists it 
to undermine it. He uses what God says to make false promises so that people are led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, the one who loves them. Now, Paul's not saying to us that we need to go on a witch hunt and see the devil behind every pillar and treat each other with suspicion. But don't be tricked by the disguise. The Corinthians fell for these super apostles because they appeared to be Christian, but they ended up with attitudes that were more Corinthian than Christian. And so can we. What disguise of Satan might you fall for? You know, after all, didn't God promise to give us the desires of our hearts? Well, you're blessed when your heart seeks what it wants, even if it's not from Jesus. Isn't, isn't Jesus' kingdom about power? Well, you're blessed whenever you're self-assertive, confident in yourself, stand up for your rights. Didn't Jesus want his people to win the world for him? So you, be an influencer. Find your voice, get a following. Isn't Jesus wonderful and the church so flawed? A third weekend in a row away from church, it's not that big a deal. One of the prayers I pray for myself and for others and that I prayed for you this week is please protect me by the blood of Jesus from Satan's accusations, lies, and tricks. And help me stand in the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Don't be tricked by the disguise. Satan loves to deceive. But Satan never died for anyone. But plenty of people have lost their devotion to the Lord because of him. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. He's our husband, waiting for us, his church, to be married to him. So don't be fooled by the message. Don't be impressed by the show. Don't be tricked by the disguise. Jesus is devoted to you. So let's live lives this week devoted to him. Let's take a moment on our own to reflect God's word to us before I lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we've sung earlier of the love of Christ, the breath of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us this week to lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus. Please forgive us for the times when we haven't been devoted to him. We have doubted his love. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us, your devotion to us. May your love warm our hearts, strengthen us, that we might live for you, 100% devoted to you. In your name we pray. Amen.